This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 40, The Cattle Expedition. Last episode consisted of two more stories that Markandeya told of the Pandavas, Krishna, and Satyabhama, his wife. The first story was another rousing battle story, with the heroic king Dundamara slaying a dragon from the beginning of time. Markandeya's second story took a more sensitive and thoughtful turn, as Yudhishthira asked him to illustrate the dharma of women and people who perform demeaning tasks. The sage turns the tables in this story, in which the two protagonists are a peasant wife and a butcher. The person whom they educate is a Brahmin, Kaushika. In this modern age, most of us have at least some degree of freedom in the occupations we choose. This was obviously not the case back in the time our story was composed. In a well-ordered city like ancient Ayodhya, everyone inherited their occupation from their father. This was called Jati, as opposed to caste or Varna, which refers to the more broad categories of Brahmin, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Shudra. I'm sure that in some instances, it was kind of nice to inherit your father's business and not to worry about competitors coming in from other industries and breaking into your markets. For most people, like the latrine cleaners and tanners, I'm sure it was stifling and oppressive to be forced into the family's occupation. On the other hand, I think India came up with a beautiful answer to this problem with their concept of Dharma. If you're going to be stuck doing a loathsome job, you might as well make the best of it. I'm sure the idea of reincarnation also offered some consolation, in that you knew even a lifetime of shoveling shit wasn't really a very long time in the big scheme of things. Getting back to our story, Markandeya was still expounding on Hindu mythology. To be honest, I simply couldn't make much of a narrative out of these stories, because they seem to be only bits and pieces of larger stories that are not told here. This final Markandeya session is in a single chapter called Angiras. Angiras was one of those divine Brahmins who acted as priest to the gods. He was father to Burhaspati, if you remember him. These fragmentary stories involve feuds among the gods and battles between Indra and the Asuras. It appears that while Markandeya was reciting these convoluted mythologies, the women in his audience also grew bored, and eventually Draupadi and Krishna's wife Satyabhama slipped out to have a more private conversation. The pair regaled each other with stories from their respective families until Satyabhama changed the subject. She asked Draupadi, How do you pull this off? Your men are all gallant and powerful. How do you keep them happy? You can tell me. Do you drug them? Is there some magic you use to control them? Please tell me your secret, whatever it is, so I may better please my husband Krishna. Draupadi was a little annoyed at the implication of her question and said, Only wanton women do things like that. You should have enough sense to know that when a woman uses spells or drugs on her husband and the husband finds out, he fears her more than a viper. No man has been improved with a spell, Plus, the potions women use tend to make their men impotent, deaf, and blind. I'll tell you what I do. I serve the Pandavas and their wives religiously and without selfishness. No other man could please me, be he God or Kandarva, young, rich, or handsome. When my husband comes home from work, I get up to greet him and make him feel welcome with a seat and a drink. My kitchen is clean and my cooking is good. I avoid laughing or nagging too much, and I do not gossip. When my husband is away... I go without makeup or jewelry until he comes back. My dharma is my husband. He is God. He is my religion. I do not sleep more than them, nor do I eat more, nor talk more than they. I never complain about my mother-in-law, no matter how aggravated I get. I care for my mother-in-law daily. I bathe her, dress her, and feed her. 
In matters of clothes, jewelry, and food, she has the final word, and I do not argue. Draupadi then described in detail how she managed the king's household back at Indraprastha. She personally greeted their thousands of Brahmin guests, managed the vast kitchens, and directed the many thousands of servants. Draupadi concluded her tirade, saying, I am the first up in the morning and the last to sleep, and all that you see is my magic spell. Yes, I know how to cast spells, but I would never consider doing such a thing. Satyabhama said, Shisha was only trying to make a joke. Draupadi then even got more serious and advised Satyabhama on how to specifically keep Krishna from wandering off with the other ladies. She said, There is no other god like your husband is to you. If you please him, you shall have anything you wish for, but if you anger him, you will suffer. A devoted wife gets children, wealth, and comfort in this life and heaven in the next. To keep Krishna's attention, cook him tasty dishes, make beautiful garlands, wear sweet perfumes, and keep a clean house. Send the servants away and do the chores yourself. Krishna will surely get the message. Whatever he may say to you, even if not a secret, keep it secret anyway. Be welcoming to your husband's friends and do not talk to his enemies. If he gets drunk, control your temper and do not scold him. And that, Draupadi said, is the whole secret to making sure your husband does not stray off into someone else's bed. Getting back to the menfolk, Markandeya finally finished up with his mythology, and Krishna found a good opportunity to wrap up this visit. He got up, summoned his wife, and mounted his chariot to leave. As Satyabhama went to join her husband, she turned to Draupadi and said, Do not fret, you will soon win the earth when your divine husbands have taken it back. No woman as good and faithful as you can suffer misfortune for long. When the Dhartarastras have all been killed, you will see the women who laughed at your exile bereft of their pride. Do not worry about your sons either. Pratavindya, Suttasoma, Shruttakarma, Shatanika, and Shruttasena are all great warriors and are thriving in Dvarka along with Abhimanyu. They are loved and cared for by everyone in our palace, so do not worry on their account. With these words, Krishna and his people set off for home, leaving the Pandavas once more in their forest exile. Now that our heroes were back in the plains of India, they were more accessible to the holy men who made their rounds from palace to pilgrimage. Thus, a regular stream of visitors passed through the Pandavas' camp. It wasn't long before sadhus appeared at the court of Hastinapur with the latest news from the Pandavas in exile. It was in that way that Dhritarashtra was told how Arjun had returned from heaven with these tremendous weapons and then quietly settled down with his brothers to wait out the end of the exile. Considering that Arjun was packing enough heat to finish the job immediately, it only tormented the king even further to know that this revenge would be served up cold. It seems like a long time since we last heard from the bad guys of Hastinapur, so Dhritarashtra's subsequent lament helps to remind us how we got here. When the Brahmin finished telling the court about the Pandavas, Dhritarashtra began one of his famous laments. Feeling pity for his nephews, the blind king wept and blamed himself for their suffering and loss. Weeping over the fact that his adopted sons, who had been raised in palaces, were now sleeping on the ground with no roof over their heads, Dhritarashtra's mind veered to feelings of guilt over what he had allowed to happen. Guilt then transmogrified into fear. He recalled the cruel words of his son Dushasan, saying, when they had been tricked into losing the dice match, Dushasan's words must have pierced Bhima's belly and burned his guts like fire. I know Yudhishthira is self-possessed and Arjun practices self-control, but Bhima's anger must be nearly uncontrollable. Duryodhana, Shakuni, Karna, and Dushasan must all be idiot. Thinking only of short-term gains 
and forgetting the inevitable disaster yet to come. It was wrong to cheat the Pandavas at dice, but I too did wrong by going along with my sons in their scheme. Arjun went bodily to the highest heaven, and he could have stayed there for eternity, frolicking with the Apsaras. But instead of that, he came back here to live in a shithole with his brothers. There can only be one explanation for that, bloody revenge. While Dhritarashtra was thus lamenting, his eldest son Duryodhana and Duryodhana's uncle Shakuni were nearby listening in. The pair then nervously called a meeting of their cronies. The meeting was convened with Duryodhana, Shakuni, Dushasan, and Karna. Karna began. He said, Why all the long faces? What are you guys worried about? I mean, look at you. You are king of the world. All the nations of India send you tribute, and their vast armies will march on your command. You could travel to the four directions and never come across a single enemy worthy of your prowess. The world is made up entirely of your slaves and well-wishers. The only exceptions are those five hobos living in the woods by the shore of Lake Dvaitavana. You should be happy, because your only opponents are thoroughly defeated. What greater joy is there than to stand on a hill and see your enemies downtrodden below? What do you say we go down there to watch them, living in holes in the ground, eating dirt? We'll bring our girlfriends along so they can get a good laugh looking at Draupadi in her tree bark outfit. Duryodhana giggled lasciviously at the thought of it, but then became downcast once more. He said, that sounds wonderful, and I'd love to do it, but I just saw my father weeping and moping about those losers. There's no way he'd let us do that. Later that night, Shakuni came up with a plan. So the next day, while Duryodhana and the king and Bhishma were sitting at court, they arranged for a cowherd to present himself. The cowherd announced to the court that the king's cattle in the hill stations were all rounded up and ready for collection. Karna and Shakuni then volunteered to lead the expedition. When the king approved this, Karna cloyingly suggested that perhaps Prince Duryodhana should come along and enjoy some hunting along the way. At first, old Dhritarashtra was pretty happy with the idea. After some thought, however, he said, Wait a minute, those cattle outposts are right next door to where the Pandavas are staying. Are you guys planning on some sort of shenanigan? I don't want you going out there without some kind of chaperone to keep an eye on you. On cue, Shakuni stood up to vouch for the venture. He offered to watch over the boys, and besides, he said, the Pandavas know their dharma, so they would never get mixed up in a fight, and we are only talking about a little hunting and a little collecting, that's all. With Duryodhana's uncle there to vouch for them, the king reluctantly agreed to allow the mission. Eagerly looking forward to having some fun at the Pandava's expense, Duryodhana summoned his 100 brothers, an army of retainers, thousands of women, 8,000 chariots, 30,000 elephants, plus a regiment of foot soldiers and cavalry, and a city's worth of merchants, cooks, cleaners, and whores. At the head of the sprawling rabble, Duryodhana led them into the woods. As the force made its way, they performed their cattle-collecting duties, and the princes were feasted and entertained at every stop along the way. As they neared the lake, however, scouts reported back that the region was occupied by a well-armed tribe of Gandharvas. The king of the Gandharvas had established the area around the lake as his camp, so Duryodhana haughtily sent a runner to the Gandharvas, announcing his approach and ordering them to clear out of the area. Now, you may recall that Gandharvas are supernatural beings, and mortals really shouldn't mess with these guys. Duryodhana, however, wasn't so wise. When the Gandharva chieftain refused to clear out, the prince reacted angrily, ordering his soldiers, punish those churls, run them out of these woods. The Karva forces armed themselves and made their formation at the entrance to the woods. 
the attack seemed to go well at first. The Gandharvas put up a moderate resistance, but their defenses soon collapsed and Duryodhana's army rushed into the woods. Thinking he had routed his foes, the prince ordered all of his forces to pursue the enemy. Once the entire army had entered the forest, they soon discovered it had all been a trap. The Gandharvas closed in behind them and flanked the army from all sides. This was the moment that Gandharvas revealed that they could fly. Suddenly, the prince and his cronies were fighting for their lives. Even in this desperate situation, Karno was no slouch. He fired arrows in all directions and slaughtered Gandharvas by the thousands. The only problem was that Gandharvas don't need to go through the whole rebirth process after they die. They simply reincarnated back into their original warrior form and resumed fighting. While the battle was raging, the Gandharva king, Chitrasena, sent in reinforcements and soon joined in the melee. The tide quickly turned in favor of the Gandharvas, and the army was overrun and surrendering. Making a last stand, Karna positioned his chariot in front of his prince and began to fight for his life. Now, having him completely surrounded, the Gandharvans fired arrows into Karna's chariot, breaking it into pieces. They also shot off his armor and helmet, and finally knocked the bow from his hands. Karna and Duryodhana were completely overrun, and finally forced to surrender, along with what remained of his army. Meanwhile, Duryodhana's mob of camp followers had stayed behind, and watched from a distance as the army was utterly decimated. Traumatized and frightened, these remnants of Duryodhana's pleasure crews went looking for the Pandavas for help. The camp followers threw themselves at Yudhishthira's feet and begged for his help and protection. At first, Bhima was satisfied to see Duryodhana reap the consequences of his folly. But this soon turned to annoyance that, if the Karvas were killed by their captors, it would steal the Pandava's chance of getting their own sweet revenge. Yudhishthira scolded his brother. He said, Don't be so harsh now that they have come to grief and have come to us for help. Do you know the law in this matter? There may be conflicts and fights within a family, but when the family is attacked by an outsider, the whole family must close ranks and fight him as one. This Gandharva has kidnapped our cousin and has harassed his women. This is an insult to our family and we shall avenge it. Arjun, the twins, and yourself shall take up arms and set your cousin free. Any Kshatriya worth his spit would run to help someone who came to him for protection. Arjun was probably just happy to have the chance to shed blood again. He said, If they do not free the Karavas, then the earth shall drink their blood. I think another reason Arjun might have been excited was that these Gandharvas were supernatural, which meant he'd get a chance to try out his magic weapons of mass destruction. The warriors all cheered Arjun, and the small force rode out to face the flying Gandharvas. Arjun called out to the opposing force. He said, The Dharma Raja requests that you free the sons of Dhritarashtra and their wives immediately. A Gandharva replied, Friend, we take orders from only one person on earth, and he isn't you. Arjun said, If you do not release my cousins, then I shall free them myself. At that, the assault began, with the Gandharvas flitting around and arrows flying in all directions. Since the Gandharvas had resorted to magic by flying around, Arjun retaliated with his own magical weapons. Reaching into the collection he had retrieved from the gods, he pulled out the Agneo weapon and fired it into the air, causing a million Gandharvas to fall out of the sky. Soon, the brothers were having difficulty just dodging the falling body parts. The enemy did not let up their attack, so Arjun pulled out his Shtunakarna, Indrajala, Sara, and Samya missiles and sent them flying in all directions. Now, the Gandharvan king, Tritrasena, entered the fray. 
Seeing that the main threat came from Arjun, he went after that hero with his club. Arjun, using bear hunting arrows, was able to knock that weapon into pieces. Chitrasena then made himself invisible, but Arjun used echolocation and was able to smoke him out and continued with his attack. Discretion being the better part of valor, Chitrasena called off the attack and made himself visible before the brothers. Arjun called out to him, Why have you kidnapped our cousins and their wives in this fashion? Chitrasena replied, Our scouts had informed us that these wicked people had come in force to these woods for the purpose of mocking you and your good wife. The king of the gods himself told me to come, arrest the Karavas, and protect you while you're in exile. Arjun replied, Then set them free. Duryodhana is our brother. This is Dharmaraja's request. Chitrasena said, He is wicked and corrupt and does not deserve freedom. He has cheated you and Yudhishthira doesn't know what he was planning to do to you. But if you still want him released, then very well. By now Yudhishthira had come along and he thanked Chitrasena for not having harmed the Karavas and requested that they be set free. Meanwhile, Indra swooped overhead, dropping Amrit over the battlefield, thus reviving all the fallen combatants. Yudhishthira then addressed the Karavas, scolding them for picking fights needlessly, and then dismissed them. Duryodhana and his cronies shamefully returned home, tails between their legs. That's all for now. Next time we'll see how Duryodhana reacts to this shameful defeat and rescue. Thanks for listening.